Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 28, 16 through 20. This is the word of God. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, this book of Matthew that you gave to us has been incredible. It's been a great journey to consider your work in the world by sending your son Jesus. Thank you. Um, I pray that you would help us to be excited and expectant as we move forward into the rest of the story that you're writing in us and through us. Lord, have your way in us this morning as we worship you and submit ourselves to the ministry of your word at work in us now. Amen. You may be seated. Well, Matthew has been quite the journey, hasn't it? Watching Jesus' life on earth unfold has been just wild to consider. I mean, we started with the genealogy, if you remember that, seeing the connection of all of God's promises to Abraham and the Jews coming to realization in Jesus. But I don't know if it was just me, it seemed like a curveball that the king was a baby in a manger, that he was so gentle and lowly. Yeah, Jesus' perfect ability to demonstrate the way, that is the way to live in submission to the Father, has been remarkable. In the midst of obstacle and adversity, Jesus was always obedient. Jesus always came through at just the right time. When his disciples didn't know where to turn or where to look, Jesus showed them the way. Really, this is the central epic of all of creation that we have watched unfold as we've studied Matthew this year. Jesus crucified for our sin, showing his ability to meet the demand of justice that the Father has. Jesus raised from the dead, showing his power over sin, death, and all of creation. I don't suppose that we'll ever stop speaking of this. I don't, I don't think that we'll ever tire of meditating on this glory in this age or in the one to come. Well, turning to our text for this morning, Craig Blomberg, one of our generation's probably greatest New Testament scholars, and even specifically of Matthew, Local here in Denver, he says this of verses 16 through 20. 
This short account contains the culmination and the combination of all of Matthew's central themes. Another commentator and Bible preacher that many of you know and listen to, John MacArthur, has referred to this text as, quote, the climax and major focal point not only of this gospel, but the entire New Testament. It's not an exaggeration to say that in its broadest sense, it's the focal point of all of Scripture, Old Testament as well as New, end quote. That's quite a summary. And it should help us this morning as we laser focus in to understand the teaching that we're about to hear so that we can order our lives around it. And if there ever was a time to say that Scripture caused the paradigm shift, this is it. But let's not take John MacArthur or Craig Blomberg's word for it. Let's go to the word now. And so we come to verse 16 that says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Yeah, the disciples met Jesus on the mountain that was so important in this narrative around Jesus' life. This is truly a mountaintop experience, literally and figuratively. This is the place where the Sermon on the Mount happened. This is the place that signified revelation and communion with God throughout the book of Matthew. And I love that we start with the disciples' obedience. They did what they were directed to do. At the Scrayback house, it's one of the ways I know it's going to be a good day if when the kids are told to put their clothes on, they go and get ready for school. Obedience is a good place to start and this isn't trivial. I mean, they were obedient in this seemingly trivial task in the midst of some serious uncertainty. If you were wondering what the disciples must have been thinking about or feeling, we get some indication in verse 17. I mean, the guy that they'd been following around for a few years that they thought was the king that was going to come and kick Rome out of Israel was suddenly dead. And then he was alive again. I'd have questions if I was one of them. Verse 17 says, And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Imagine the spectrum of worship and elation and lingering fear and insecurity that they were experiencing. And they still chose obedience, and they went to the mountain. I mean, this group of disciples, they left everything to follow him. And then he was crucified, and really, they, they abandoned him in that moment. Remember Peter? Now, the text says that some doubted, but it doesn't say who exactly. Perhaps some worshipped and some doubted. Or maybe some had some of both. Matthew gives us this simple data. They worshipped him and some doubted. And the connotation of the word used for doubt signifies doubt as a kind of hesitation. 
not as unbelief. Well, maybe their hesitance was caused by thoughts like, well, how would, how's Jesus going to respond after, after we left him during his arrest and crucifixion? Maybe they anticipated a response like we'd respond in that situation. I saw a meme this week that said something like, you think you can hurt my feelings? I held the work light for my dad as a kid. I mean, maybe they anticipated frustration and disappointment or anger. Maybe their hesitation was their Jewish sensibility coming through, causing an awkwardness of worship of anyone but Yahweh. Maybe this was included to show us that we aren't crazy when we're hesitant or when we're insecure about something. How will Jesus respond when I show up after I've just fallen and I've messed it up again? Maybe you can relate with the mixed bag of feelings that the disciples had in this moment right here. Worship of and hope in Jesus. But also hesitation, insecurity. Well, Jesus comes through again. Knowing the state of their hearts in the midst of hope and hesitation, Jesus calls his followers to follow him into the rest of the story of his kingdom coming by calling them to believe in his authority, to obey his command while depending on his presence. This is what we'll spend the rest of our time on this morning. Believe in his authority. Jesus first speaks of his authority, and he, call, he calls all those who follow him to believe in his authority. Verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth. This isn't two places of many. This is the entire cosmos, the whole universe, the heavens and earth are all of that. Every place, thing, or person that has existence is under the authority of Jesus. And some find this unbelievable. Ben preached last week on the resurrection and he talked about that. But let's take a minute, let's weigh the data that was witnessed by Matthew and the disciples. What has Jesus done to show us of his authority? Well, early in Matthew, in Jesus' teaching ministry, it says that he spoke as one with authority. This was different than other teachers. He defined or clarified what the Old Testament taught. Even the wind and the waves obeyed him. Nature did what he said to do. The sick and the lame were healed at places throughout Matthew. Pestilence and sickness are under his rule. Spiritual principalities, demons, obeyed him. He died, but the grave couldn't hold him. Death couldn't defeat him or overwhelm him. He bore the weight of sin in his crucifixion. But that didn't destroy him. 
All other places in Scripture attest to his authority. He referred to himself as the Son of Man, alluding to Daniel chapter 7, we learned. And it says there, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And we read of his authority and his power in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul, Colossians 1, and I, I have to read these verses. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Preach, Paul. I implore you this morning to believe in his authority. Orient your life around it. Find comfort in it. Put your confidence in his authority. He's been given authority. And his authority is not dependent upon my response to it or yours. He has it. The question is whether or not we'll humbly submit to it or stand in rebellion against it. Well, scripture attests that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. As I've studied this and ruminated on this, I just can't help get over, or I can't get over, this is so anti-American. Picture the don't tread on me flag. <laughs> the American spirit that says, you do you. Find yourself. Be your own person. Well, the authority of Christ is anti our flesh. Adam's pride in the garden was that he could be his own authority. He didn't need or want God's. Our sinful pride is the same repentance, what we're called to, think back to John the Baptist, is a turning away from a rebellion against God's authority. A turning away from our sinful pride that we can be our own authority. And it's a submission to the authority of Jesus. That's why we call him Lord, which is Master. Well, we believe in his authority. We believe first by repenting from sinful pride and the myriad ways that that works its way throughout our lives in sinful pursuits. We pursue 
uh, we pursue the things that God wants us to. We turn away from sin so that our life would come under his rule and reign. Now his forgiveness is offered to all. When we repent of our sin and live by faith in Jesus, this is great news. So for those who believe and do submit to his authority, Jesus makes a very clear connection for us in our verses today. If you're submitted to his authority, he gives us a clear command. Verse 19 and part of 20. So read with me again, verse 18, 19, and part of 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Let's answer two questions here. What is the command And how do we carry it out? So first, what is the command? Jocko Willink, he's got a very popular podcast. He's a retired Navy SEAL and leadership consultant. He talks about a principle called commander's intent in the book Extreme Ownership. He says this, every tactical level team leader must understand not just what to do, but why they're doing it. When the subordinate leaders and the frontline troops fully understand the purpose of the mission, how it ties into strategic goals and what the impact has, they can then lead, even in the absence of explicit orders. Here in verse 19, Jesus gives a clear commander's intent. This is the command. Make disciples of all nations. We understand the purpose of the mission too, don't we? Salvation is here in Christ and everyone is invited. Yes, now we're ambassadors and announcers of this message. We're heralds announcing the king and his kingdom. So how does this tie to the commander's strategic goals and the impact that he seeks? Well, the the goal is disciples from all nations. The impact is that the dead are brought to life. The blind see redemption and ransom is secured. There isn't a higher goal or a more dynamic impact. And this is the culmination of all of Scripture's teaching. Make disciples. We make that so much harder than it needs to be. Make disciples. That's the command. Now we're also given a where to make disciples, we are to go to all nations. All nations means all ethnicities. Jesus wasn't thinking primarily of nation states. He was talking about people groups and tribes all over the world that he wanted to know of the king and his kingdom. I mean, we get this beautiful picture in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 of the worship service in heaven After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne of the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. This is so exciting. 
Jesus is making dramatically clear that salvation isn't just for Israel. Everyone is invited. All the original disciples, this was everyone outside of Israel. That would be us. Like if you were them, that's us. And here we are today. Because somebody was obedient and they went and made disciples. Now this certainly didn't exclude Israel, but this was a huge paradigm shift. Now today, some will pick up from their homelands and go to foreign people groups. Global evangelization statistics reveal that there are still millions upon millions of people that don't have the Bible. They don't have Christians that live next door or down the street. No, the uh, finishing the task is a great commission mobilization network. And they tell us that there's 189 unengaged, unreached people groups numbering over 5.7 million souls that are still beyond the reach of the gospel. These 189 ethnic groups are perhaps the neediest of the needy as they're unengaged, which means that no one, no church, no missionary, no mission agency has yet taken responsibility to go. Now there's many other groups of people where only a very, very small percentage of the population is Christian has heard of the king and his kingdom. It's not an exaggeration based on other statistics from missions organizations that there's probably over a billion people that have never heard of the king. So let me ask you a very direct question. Are you called to go to these people? Is the Lord calling you right now to go to these people, to these people groups that don't have the message, they don't have the word? Some are called in this very specific way to go to a foreign location from their own. And if you're called to go this way, if you feel the Holy Spirit working in you to go to these people, would you share it with us? We want to partner with you. We want to help mobilize and encourage and plan and get you ready. We'll support with financial resources to go to Maybe to translate God's word into new languages like one of our sisters. To support health and education and sowing the seed of the gospel into other cultures. Where Christ's name is maligned and slandered and not welcome. Yeah, we'll do this by maintaining relationship. Through care packages and text messages, emails encouraging you with scripture or a kind word. 
But what of the rest of us who don't go to a foreign land? Well, for the rest of us, I love what David Platt says. He says, discipleship is not a comfortable call inviting most Christians to come, be baptized, and sit in one place together. That's convicting. But isn't this the temptation for most American Christians and the circles that we run in? To come to church, serve a bit, give regularly. If you're called to go abroad or not, all disciples are called to be making disciples wherever they are at. The mission is to make disciples. Now we're to question two. How do we go about making disciples? Well, whatever the location, whether it's a foreign country and a different culture, the ingredients for discipleship are the same. They transcend cultural specifics. We're to baptize and teach disciples to do everything that Jesus commanded. So whether you're near or far, the principles are the same. Baptize and teach. To baptize is to identify your, to, or to be baptized, is to identify your life with Christ. Being baptized into Christ. It's an act of obedience after one professes faith in Christ. We're also proclaiming, we've been buried, we've died, our old flesh is gone, and we've been raised to new life in Jesus, to a new set of priorities for our life. A new paradigm, which is making disciples. Now, one place we go, there's many places that we could have landed on. Well, where does Scripture guide us on exactly how do we do this? I picked Acts 2.42. This verse gives us the main ingredients. The verse says that the early believers, this early Christian uh, church movement devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. Now, they didn't not work for a living. They didn't retreat to a separate holy huddle somewhere totally disconnected from other people that they lived in community with. Yes, they had special gatherings like we read about in this verse. But number one ingredient is as we seek to make disciples, devote yourself and your discipleship ministry to Scripture. Know it. Memorize it. Study it at home. Study it in fellowship with friends. Even friends who maybe haven't put their faith in Jesus yet. Invite those who aren't disciples into your fellowship and into your study so they might see the glories of Christ. It's not because our fellowship is all of a sudden perfect when we follow Jesus. On the contrary, in, in spite of our imperfection and our struggle, what a great way to present the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light by going directly to God's word with them. Many people have interest in the Bible today. And they want to know more about it. And people are open spiritually. Go there with them. Let it pour over your mind and your heart and study and meditation. And when you bring others up into this with you, 
their knowledge of the king and his kingdom grows. They'll hear the call to repentance and to faith in Jesus. Oh, mine the word of God's depths together. What you'll find is more precious than gold or silver. You'll find the king in his kingdom. And the Holy Spirit is at work in this ministry, in our own lives, in our fellowship, as we evangelize and disciple uh, people from outside of the church. The Holy Spirit connects his word to these places in our life that need to be transformed and need to be shaped. Areas that need to be brought under his authority. Devoting your discipleship to the word is central. And if, if that's not a big part of your discipleship, then what you're doing, it, it's not discipleship. Now the breaking of bread that Acts 2.42 mentions, I think is instructive to us as well. I mean, it, this is a foundational verse and moment for us at Orchard. This is why we break bread and we pass the elements each week together during the Lord's table service. Now, many of you didn't grow up at Orchard or LBC, and you're not used to that practice each week. I'm among you. I was not used to that. And this certainly isn't a new law, but the purpose is that we remember each week who we were and who we are now because of Christ. We remember that we were lost, but now we've been found. It's a lesson and a message that we don't outgrow. We don't stop needing. It's part of our discipleship and how we can bring others along as disciples by encouraging the regular remembrance of Christ's work for us. Now this is a regular practice in the life of a disciple. The next, prayers. Devote yourself to prayer. COVID killed our evangelism prayer meeting. And I lament that as I prepare for this sermon. And I think maybe uh, some New Year's resolutions may come out of that. But devote yourself to prayer. Teaching disciples to pray, to talk to God, to acknowledge who God is. When we bow in prayer, we prostrate. I mean, the, the, the Old Testament language about prostrating, like you're bowing and it, it's a positional thing. You're acknowledging who he is and who you are and your need for him. We need to do this regularly. And in our discipleship, we need to teach to pray. That's why Jesus taught us to pray. These are the things that make up the recipe. It's very, really simple and straightforward. Devoting ourselves to the word, fellowship around his word, remembering what Christ has done and regularly bowing to God in prayer. We will mix the ingredients over and over again throughout our lives for our own discipleship and as we lead others in growing as disciples. It's a blueprint for wherever the context that you might find yourself in a foreign land or down the street in your neighborhood or your office. Now, so much has been written, so many books, articles, sermons preached about disciple-making, and rightly so. 
After all, it's the mission of the church. It's why we exist. I can't cover every facet today. You'd miss lunch and dinner. But just one that I'll mention is from Dawson Trotman, founder of The Navigators, a great discipleship ministry that exists alongside the church. He preached a message that was turned into a booklet called Born to Reproduce. (laughs) I haven't read the book, but I read the title. And that's so instructive for us. A follower of Jesus who doesn't reproduce might not be a disciple. They might just be along to listen. Now, making disciples, regardless of our context, is what obeying his command looks like. It's a way of life. It's really a symptom of believing in his authority over all creation and his authority over your life and how you spend it. It's a way of living that is oriented around and interruptible in order to facilitate pointing people to Jesus. You know, as I've wrestled with this text for weeks, I've felt this desire to have this neatly packaged how-to manual to just hand off to you all today. A formula that we could just follow um, that makes discipleship easy. If that's what you came for, I'm afraid that I've failed. Because making disciples isn't easy. Making disciples will cost you something. But it's our mission, and it's why we exist. So I want to share a couple stories that I think illustrate how discipleship can happen. I'll show you a couple pictures. I see this picture of this house. This is a house where someone invited me to study the Bible when I wasn't following Jesus. Is it an impressive house? Nope. Is it a big house where lots of people comfortably fit? I can assure you it wasn't. You see, a fancy house or apartment isn't needed to make disciples. We can use our space for hospitality in a way that invites others to come to Jesus. Come learn about his ways. Ponder who he is. Consider his invitation to you. I gathered in this house with other teenagers, and it wasn't a scholar who led us and study. It was someone who was just out of college. And he was devoted to the word and he took us there with him. We sat and we'd read through a section of the New Testament, uh, of a New Testament epistle. He gave us a notebook. I thought that was super cool as a high school kid, like free notebook. We wrote down questions that we had as we read through the scriptures. And, uh, what does this mean? Write write it down. We'll talk about it. We could write down insights that popped up that that we could share with the group. Oh, this really struck me. Or or the ways that that scripture applied to our life. And then we'd end our time together 
Some would share detailed prayer requests about their lives and things going on. And, and in this way, God's word was brought to bear in those areas of our life. So here's another picture. Chocolate chips. Well, what do chocolate chips have to do with disciple making? Well, making disciples will cost you something. Usually uh, money, time, energy, maybe one, maybe all of those. In this example, money to bake cookies. I know a couple who's devoted to disciple making and they keep a fridge filled with pop and bubblies and other drinks so that people feel welcome and are excited to visit. Talk about what God's doing in their life. Study the Bible together. Now they keep food and snacks on hand so that when hungry young men show up, they've got something for them. So my friend, uh, she bakes a double batch of chocolate chip cookies every week. That's about 1,200 chocolate chips. Two, two bags. She goes heavy on the chocolate chips. She wants them to keep coming back. This couple has been doing this for around 30 years. It's funny how simple hospitality is and how much it facilitates discipleship. Let's do the quick math just because it's kind of fun. Put some stuff in perspective. Two bags of chocolate chips a week, 1,200 chocolate chips, times 40 weeks. I didn't do 52 because they travel a bit. Um, that's 48,000 chocolate chips or 80 bags of chocolate chips a year. For 30 years, that's 1,440,000 chocolate chips or 2,400 bags of chocolate chips. I use the inflation-adjusted price of $2 per bag that's down from $3.19 that they're on sale at Target for her. <laughs> that's $4,800 on chocolate chips. That doesn't include the cost of the drinks in their fridge. That doesn't include the late nights and the other interruptions with people stopping by at random or late hours. The command isn't to make our life as comfortable or as pleasurable as possible. That's the American dream. That's not the command that Jesus gave us. It's not his dream for us. The suggested action here is that we should think about discipleship with every decision we make. What if the decisions we made in life were decided by the impact that decision had on our ability to make disciples? Whether or not we buy a house, where we buy a house, what should I do with my bonus from work? Is there a way that I can use it that would help me and my family facilitate discipleship more strategically? Should I use it to help another ministry facilitate discipleship in an area that I physically can't be involved in? Should I take that promotion at work or not? It's going to require more of my time and energy I'm going to have to travel more. It's going to hamper my ability to make disciples in other contexts that God's called me to. I've got a confession. Sometimes I make plans in my life that are more focused on worldly parameters of success 
or produce pleasure for me than around the king's command here. This is so convicting to me. Now, professional success, personal pleasure, they're not exclusive of making disciples. But it's not the foremost thing in the mind of your Lord and his will for your life or mine. His command is that as you go, your purpose will be focused around making disciples. How do you feel God leading you right now in this moment? Are there ways that you can be more intentional about disciple making? What are they? Now, what's stopping you from telling your home group about them so that you have some encouragement and some accountability to move forward with them? Brothers and sisters, I know we do so much here at Orchard that is intentional and focused on discipleship. I'm so thankful. I'm regularly encouraged by the faithful ministry of the word that so many of you have at Orchard, not just from this pulpit, but throughout our church. I'm so blessed by it. My family is blessed by it. I'm sure, I'm positive that many of your prayers sustain me personally, even this week. But I think we can grow as Christ's bride in how we intentionally invite others to the wedding feast. There's going to be a party, the best party ever, the best meal you've ever eaten, the best host that you could ever imagine. He spared no expense not even his own life, so that you could come, so that your neighbor could come, so you'd invite your coworker to come, so your classmates would come. He wants you to invite them and help them grow as a disciple of Jesus. He wants you to reorient your life so that they'd be at the banquet meal. It'll cost you something. Maybe it's your reputation as a nice person who works really hard. Maybe it'll change and they'll say like, man, this guy seems possessed by Jesus or something. Maybe it'll cost money. Maybe it'll cost a job we can start by pleading with the Lord for lost souls in prayer. Let's commit today, like today, right now, commit with me to pray for the ones around us who don't know Christ. Let's be motivated by love for our neighbors. And let's figure this out together. Like, together. Like, I don't have it figured out. I wish I did. I'm failing. I'm not handing a manual but let's do it together. Let's commit to it together as a church. Okay. So NBD, no big deal. Jesus uh, just told us, uh, just proclaim his, uh, my excellencies to every soul on the planet. Teach them to obey all that I said. It's all pretty straightforward. And daunting. I mean, that's a lot. (laughs) 
But here's the cool part in how our text ends today. The one with all authority is the one giving the orders. And he's able to help us carry it out. <laughs> it's easy for us to maybe feel a little bit overwhelmed by this calling. I mean, it's the work of a lifetime in each of our lives in our own discipleship. Just learning to walk more obediently is a full-time job. One that at certain moments, even the most godly among us, feels hardly competent to carry out. It feels a little bit like we're flying the plane and trying to build it as we go. But I'm here to tell you the success of the mission that he's given doesn't depend on your sufficiency or mine. No, we depend on his presence with us until the end of time. Verse 20. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is Emmanuel. This is God with us. He doesn't defect after commissioning us into his service. These, Jesus doesn't just have the authority to give us the order. He has the ability and the desire to help sustain and guide us as we carry out those orders. When Jesus died and the curtain of the temple tore apart, it was symbolic of all people's access to God through Jesus. It was symbolic of the helper being released from that holy place that came from the Jews, now coming to all people. And shortly after Matthew wrote these verses came the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit filled the disciples. And scripture tells us that all disciples, you and me, have the Spirit in us, equipping us to carry out the command of the King. And we're living the rest of the story right now. <laughs> the rest of the story, many of you maybe know, was a radio program made famous by Paul Harvey for decades. Paul Harvey was a commentator who'd share some piece of news uh, by telling a story about it. Usually, by the end of the story, he'd reveal that his story was about someone famous or involved some significant larger narrative that was known to most people. Matthew has shared the story with us that reveals the king and his kingdom are here. They're present with us. And the king has commissioned us, his followers, to make disciples. You and I are part of the story. So whether you're filled with hope or dealing with doubt, the call is clear. Believe in his authority today. Obey his command to make disciples and continue to depend on his presence. Brothers and sisters, let's reproduce. Let's make disciples. Please stand and I'll close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. These words you shared with us that Matthew wrote down for us. We need this guidance. We need this word, this exhortation, the imperative, the examples, Lord. Help us to see the examples that are, that are honestly, they're so plentiful when we look around, when we reflect and remember in our life the people that have discipled us, that have brought us into the faith by sharing the gospel. God, we depend on you. 
we depend on you to produce this fruit, to make disciples. Lord, we want to be faithful and obedient. Lead us to this end. And we depend on you now, Lord, as we go. Lead us, guide us, sustain us, and show us the way. Amen. You are dismissed. Dismissed.